Well, good morning, Lake Merced again. Uh, as we get started this morning, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, that's where we're going to be getting started this morning. Thank you, Michael, for leading us in a, a wonderful meditation on the Lord's Supper and talking to us about giving. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, Lake Merced is in week three of a year-long series that we're doing called Read Scripture in 2021. And the goal is to, to read the Bible all together from Genesis all the way to Revelation throughout the year. And so each week's sermon is going to be based on that week's reading that we did. And so here we are in week three, and we're finishing up now the book of Genesis, and we're beginning the book of Exodus. And I know that, that three weeks to preach through the entirety of the book of Genesis, if you've ever read it, you know how much is there, is a little bit crazy. But there's a method to my madness, and it's designed to help you grow, to help all of us grow. And so I want to I encourage you, wherever you are right now, whoever you are, commit to this. If you haven't started already, that's okay. Don't worry about going back to, to Genesis 1 and trying to get caught up. Just pick up today's reading today, which means we're reading Exodus 10, 11, and 12, and Psalm 20. That's where we are today. If you do that, you'll be in great shape for next Sunday. And so I definitely want to encourage you there. Uh, last week, we covered the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are stories of what we've come to know as the patriarchs of the Bible. And their stories teach us and they remind us that God had a rescue plan for the people that he loved so very much. It was a plan which would overcome our lostness, man's lostness to sin and death. And it would restore creation as it had been intended to be from the very beginning of time in total perfection, where God and humanity could live and enjoy each other fully once again. Like that's what God created. That's, that's where we're headed. That's what this entire story is all about. And so God's rescue plan began with one man. It began with the man Abraham. And it was this unilateral, non-contingent, to borrow a word from last week, or unconditional promise from God to Abraham that God would make Abraham into a great nation. That God would give him descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky and that through his offspring, through Abraham's offspring and his lineage, the entire world would eventually be blessed. I want you to think about that. The entire world was blessed through this one man. And so that promise that was made to Abraham was later confirmed in his son Isaac. And again, to his son, Jacob. And on and on it's supposed to go. And what we learned last week was that, that God's promise was not made to a people who were distinctly righteous or more good than other men or women. That's not who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. No, these are, these are guys who made their mistakes. Instead, it was a promise that was made to faithful people. People who heard God's promises, who heard God's plans. And most importantly, they believed those plans. The Bible says it was Abraham's willingness to believe that was credited to him as righteousness. And so this week we turn our attention to the next stage. In their family story, it's often depicted as the story of Joseph, who was the favorite son among the 12 sons of Jacob. And so as we get started this morning, I want to invite you wherever you are. Let's talk to God. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Raise your hands. Get on the floor on your knees. Do something. Let's pray. Let's give God everything we have. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for being here with us today. As, as a few of us are here in this room right now and many more 
watching from home in their living rooms. Father, I, I thank you that you have been faithful to us. I thank you that you have sustained us. And I thank you, Lord, that you have, you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, this morning, I, I pray the same prayer I pray almost every, every week. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Father, help us not to be a people who plug our ears or close our eyes and turn our hearts away from truth. Father, soften our hearts. Help us to see. And Father, use me in this time. Let this in no way, shape, or form be about me or be about us. But Father, be about you. We exist and we desire to glorify you. Would you help us do that today? We want to praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Whew. Breathing through these masks can be tough sometimes. You know, this past Monday, many of us stopped. And we observed a day remembering the incredible legacy and, and the message of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and for me, just, just speaking personally, it was a day that was more meaningful to me this year than probably any other Martin Luther King Jr. day in my lifetime, simply because so much of the, the racial division and unrest that he worked so hard to fight against, that he laid his life down to fight against, was suddenly rearing its ugly head again in our national conversations. And certainly you'd be hard-pressed to think about Dr. King and reflect on his legacy and his story and not think about those, those four words that are so famously attributed to him. You remember them well. He said, I have a dream. I have a dream. It was an incredible speech that he gave in our nation's capital back in 1963. And it envisioned a future, a better future for all Americans where we'd all be united and, and valued equally, regardless of the, the amount of melanin in our skin or, or the pigment of our skin. It's a, it's a dream that we, we've certainly made a lot of progress on from those days. And it's one in which we still have some very hard work to do. But it is absolutely a dream worth dreaming. And so if dreams are the theme and the thrust of this week, if they're the theme and the thrust of Dr. King's legacy, then I think that's as good an introduction and segue as any into the story of Joseph. So let's talk about Joseph this morning, church. And you know the story of Joseph, right? I mean, especially those of you who have been reading this week and are, who are up with their reading, but I'm sure many of you have heard his story or parts of his story throughout the entirety of your lives. And it's a story that is full of dreams. It's a story full of literal dreams. Dreams about the great things that God has planned. The great things that God is getting ready to do in Joseph and for his people and for so many more people. And so as Joseph's story begins, we're introduced to this 17-year-old teenager. This young guy, Joseph, who is the unquestioned favorite in his entire family. After all, he's the son of the true love of Jacob's life, his, his wife Rachel. And Jacob's parenting style, unfortunately, seems to have been all too influenced by the favoritism that he received in his own family growing up, where his father favored his brother Esau and his mother seemed to favor him. And so having these known favorites within the family seems to be the norm in Jacob's life. He's made it very clear to everybody, Joseph's my guy, that's the one who I, who I favor. But, as you might imagine, especially if you have siblings, it also made Joseph not the most likable person, at least to his older brothers. They hated him. And as chapter 37 gets going, it takes all of five verses before Joseph 
reveals precisely why they felt the way they did about him. Because in short, Joseph reveals that he is a young man of total indiscretion. Total indiscretion, which is a nice way of saying that Joseph is about to say something and do something that his brothers are not going to like. In fact, they're going to hate him even more for it. And he's either too ignorant to, to understand or realize it, or he's too arrogant to care. But Joseph has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams. And in these dreams, he tells them essentially the same thing. He looks at all his brothers and he says, guys, I had a dream that all of you are going to bow down to me. Like if there was already a fire burning in two small dreams and the lack of tact with which Joseph delivered them, uh, man, he went and he poured fuel all over that fire and now his brothers hated him even more. And one day, as they're out in the fields, they see Joseph in, in his ultra-colorful coat that you couldn't miss from a mile away, and he's coming toward them in the distance, and they decide that now's the time. They're going to act on their hatred. They're finally going to get rid of this nuisance that is their youngest brother after all. And first they say, hey, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Let's just kill him. Let's be done with Joseph. But interestingly, there's this one brother. His name is Judah. And he speaks up with a different idea. He says, all right, guys, what will we gain? What will we gain if we just kill our brother and cover it all up? He says, come, let's sell him. Here's the Ishmaelites right here. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and we're not going to lay our hands on him at all. After all, he is our brother. He is our, our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so why Judah's saying this, we don't know. Whether it's coming from a place of care or, or the simple recognition that, hey, we might as well get paid if we're going to get rid of our brother after all. Whatever it is, Judah steps in and he changes course. And so Joseph is sold to some Ishmaelites, some Midianites, they're later called, who take him immediately down to Egypt and they sell him as a servant to a man named Potiphar, who's one of the high-up officials for Pharaoh. And two chapters later, in Genesis 39, if you're following along with me, if you turn there, Joseph's story resumes one more time. And we're going to learn about how Joseph has, has thrived in this role with Potiphar. Even though the Lord has blessed Potiphar's household because Joseph is there. That's an important theme. Pay attention to that. And so, you know, I recognize being sold as a servant is like no person's idea of a great life. And yet Joseph, in his faithfulness, has managed to, to make the most of this horrible situation. And he is thriving in Potiphar's household. He's doing everything great. Until there is, once again, this, this change of course. And so we read about how, how Potiphar's wife is, is so overcome with this intense sexual desire for Joseph whenever her husband is away that she repeatedly, over and over and over again, comes on to Joseph only to be rebuffed time after time after time out of Joseph's loyalty to Potiphar, to his master. And as she grows increasingly insulted, as she grows increasingly embittered by his rejection, she deceitfully moves once again to rid herself of her problem. And so she lies, and she claims that Joseph had come on to her, and that 
and that she screamed for help. And he ran away. He left his cloak behind. He ran away. And so what does Potiphar do? He does what any loyal husband would do. He gets incensed and he takes Joseph and he throws him in prison to rot. Just when Joseph was starting to make some progress, where does he find himself? He's right back at rock bottom. And yet, just as he had done before, this, this faithful man, Joseph, makes the best of a terrible situation. And God begins to move in these, these small and these subtle ways once again in his life. Once again, God was with him. He was with him and, and the warden of the prison. And, and, and so the warden takes Joseph and he puts him in charge of the prison. Over, over all the other prisoners in the prison, that is. And God blessed the prison because of Joseph. And there in prison, Joseph meets these two other officials of Pharaoh who have been thrown in there, the cupbearer and the baker. And each of these men have dreams while they're in there. And neither of them know what to do with them. They just know that they're really, really important dreams. And so Joseph, kind of having some experience with dreams of his own, kind of volunteers his dream deciphering skills. And he tells the baker, okay, here's what your dream means. Uh, in three days, you're going to be put to death. He looks at the cupbearer and he says, okay, here's what your dream means. In three days, you're going to be restored to your position with Pharaoh. And he has one simple request. Just do me a favor. When you get out, would you remember me before Pharaoh? Please do that for me. He says, absolutely. Never forget you. Put in a good word for me with the boss. You got it. And yet, as the cupbearer was released, guess what? Nothing happened. He forgot him. He failed. And so Joseph sits there and sits there and sits there. Until sometime later when Pharaoh goes, ah, I had this dream. And I have no idea what it means, but here's what happened. And like, what's going on? And suddenly the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, Pharaoh, I know a guy. See, there was this time when I was in prison, you put me there, and I had a dream and I didn't know what to make of it. And he told me what it meant and he was right. And so Pharaoh goes, okay, bring him to me. So he calls for Joseph. And he says, here's my dream, Joseph. Would you tell me what it means? And Joseph listens and he says, I, I can't do it, but God will tell you. He will tell me to tell you what this means. And what God reveals to Joseph is a plan. The text says this is a plan that had been firmly decided by God. That the dream or dreams that Pharaoh had were dreams that indicated a plan that were going to affect at least the next 14 years of life in Egypt. So Joseph says, all right, Pharaoh, here's what's happening. There are going to be seven years of feast. Seven years of, of absolute, total prosperity. You guys are going to be killing it. You're going to grow so much, sell so much. It's going to be awesome. But those seven years are going to be followed by seven years of complete and total famine. And so Joseph suggests that if Pharaoh's smart with these next seven years, whatever he sows, whatever he reaps, he saves up. He stores up so that when there is a famine, they're going to be in a position to thrive and survive this famine. And so Pharaoh is so impressed by what Joseph's plan is and what, what Joseph's saying, just like Potiphar, just like Warden, all that stuff, Joseph is moved and he's put in a position to be in charge over all of Egypt. Over all of Egypt. And he's made the second most powerful man in the country next to Pharaoh, and that's it. And so what does God do? 
God blesses the entire nation of Egypt because Joseph was there. Hopefully you're, you're beginning to see a theme. Wherever Joseph goes, what happens? And so as the rest of the story goes, all the surrounding territories and nations hit the famine and they begin to starve and they come to Egypt because Egypt has food and, and everyone knows it. And included among those starving families is a family with 11 brothers and a father named Jacob. And so 10 of these brothers come begging for food, looking for food, trying to buy some food. And they don't recognize that the man who's in charge, the man who's leading this entire operation is their own brother, Joseph. And Joseph sees them and he sets in plan this motion, to, or he sets in motion a plan to forgive them and, and reveal himself to them and eventually bring them to Egypt where he will make sure that all of their needs are cared for. Man, I, I got to tell you, the story of Joseph is an amazing story. I don't know if you, if you have read this story before or really let it sink in, but it's one of my absolute favorite stories. In fact, even Hollywood has shown that this makes an awesome story. It's one of the best depictions that go from book to film in, in all of the entire Bible. But I have a question for you. You ready? What if, what if the story of Joseph isn't even about Joseph? What if the story of Joseph isn't even about Joseph? And maybe you're thinking, Josh, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I read it this week. Twelve of the last 13 chapters of Genesis are about Joseph. Of course, this is Joseph's story. There's a podcast I've mentioned this several times before that I love to listen to. Maybe you, you do as well. I know I've mentioned it. It's by Malcolm Gladwell, author, podcaster. It's called Revisionist History. And the gist or the purpose of the podcast is this. This is their little tagline. That each week, Revisionist History will go back and they'll reinterpret something from the past. An event, a person, an idea. Something overlooked. Something misunderstood. And I couldn't help but think about those words this week as I dug more into the Joseph story. I couldn't help but ask myself whether we'd overlooked something, whether we'd misunderstood something in this amazing story. And so it nagged at me. And yet the more I considered and the more I prayed and the more I studied, the more I became convinced that Joseph was, was merely a character and a, a role player, really, in a much bigger story, a story in which he was not the star. And honestly, what it made me think of was the butterfly effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of the butterfly effect. There was actually a movie in 2004 starring Ashton Kutcher that was kind of based roughly on this idea. But the story goes like this. That in 1961, there was a man by the name of Edward Lorenz. Lorenz is a mathematician and a meteorologist at MIT. And he was running a computer model that was designed to predict the weather. And in this computer model, he was supposed to enter a particular value. The value was 0.506127. He's supposed to type that into the computer. And instead, thinking that it was inconsequential, the number was too small to even matter, he just rounded the number. He typed in 0.506. And then he walked away. This is a number that was 99.97% exactly the same as the number he should have entered. But he walked away and he went and got a cup of coffee 
and he was gone for about an hour. And by the time he came back, the computer had finished simulating about two months worth of weather data. And so he came and he examined the results and he discovered that while initially he got numbers that were right in line with what he expected to see, eventually there started to be this variation. First it was small, then a little larger, and a little larger, and eventually he's seeing numbers that were completely different from what he was supposed to be seeing. And it was then that he realized just how vital that little tiny 0.000127 really was in this model. As, as insignificant as it seemed, it ended up being incredibly significant. And so he studied this more, and he studied this more, and he shared this with his colleagues. And, and one meteorologist came to him and remarked that if the theory were correct, then one flap of a seagull's wings would be enough to alter the course of weather forever. In later years, as Lorenz would go and tell this story, he, he kind of changed the language a little bit from a seagull to kind of a much more poetic and, and beautiful imagery surrounding a butterfly. And here's what he said, or what he asked. He says, does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Church, these are questions that we all wrestle with in our own lives from time to time, don't we? Like, they're those, those what-if questions. Like, if one thing had gone slightly different in my life, then the entire course of my life would be different than it is right now. Like, if I hadn't left my house at that particular time, I never would have gotten into that severe car accident. Or if I hadn't stayed with that job that I hated, I never would have gotten that job that I love, that I get to do now. Or if I had had kids then, instead of having kids when I did, I'd have completely different children. Or maybe I wouldn't even have children at all. If I'd walked on the left side of the road, instead of the right side of the road, like maybe I would have never met my wife. Like we all have some version of that curiosity in our lives, don't we? Don't we wonder about that sometimes? When I think about my own life, I asked the same questions. Like if I had gone to the high school that I was supposed to go to instead of the high school that I went to, I never would have met Tiffany. Or if, if Tiffany had stayed at the high school that she started at and her family hadn't bought a house and moved across town and transferred her to a different high school, I never would have met Tiffany. If I hadn't walked into biology one day and asked Urbella Yosef for a piece of gum, and if she had had gum, then, then Tiffany never would have given me gum and I never would have met Tiffany. And if that night, if my friend Jack hadn't come back to pick me up after a football game, that very night with a suburban full of girls and Tiffany happened to be one of them, I may never have become close friends with Tiffany. And if I hadn't become close friends, I, I wouldn't have gone to church with her. I wouldn't have married her. I wouldn't have had kids with her. And if all those things had happened, I guarantee I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today sharing this message. You can never tell how much the smallest or, or, or seemingly inconsequential moments in our lives can have this huge impact on us. So does the flap of a butterfly wing in Brazil cause a tornado in Texas? Even Lorenz eventually backtracked on that. But we can all appreciate that that line of questioning, what, what kind of emotion that evokes within all of us and how it begs us to ask the question, what if? So let's go back to the Joseph story for just a moment. 
What if the Joseph story isn't about Joseph? And there are two clues that I want you to pay particular attention to this morning. If you're, if you're reading along in your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 37 and look at verse 2. See, one of the things that we know that the writer of Genesis does to indicate something of a new chapter or a new section, because you realize when you're reading and you see these like chapter headings and chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all that stuff was not originally there. That's stuff that we've added later to kind of help navigate that stuff. That's not part of the original text. And so what the author would do when he wanted to indicate a new section or a new chapter or a new idea is he'd use a particular phrase. He did this 10 times throughout the book of Genesis. He uses it in Genesis 2, 5, 6, 10, 11, 25, 36, and again in, in chapter 37. And each time he begins with this phrase, this is the account of blank. And then they, they tell you who or what the section is about. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is the account of Adam's family. I get the pun there. This is the, the account of Noah's family or of, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You get the idea. So how does Genesis 37 frame what is about to come? Look at verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Some translation, translations will say Jacob's family. But the text literally just says, this is the account of Jacob. Genesis 37 and everything that follows is about Jacob. It's about his family, his legacy, his story. Secondarily, as you read this week, you may have been puzzled when you turned the page and you read Genesis chapter 38. Whereas all the other chapters that surround Genesis 38 talk about or deal with Joseph in some way, shape, or form, here comes chapter 38 that throws an incredible curveball to the reader, seemingly out of nowhere. And this has puzzled even the greatest Old Testament scholars throughout the years. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's as notable as they come in terms of Old Testament scholarship in our world today, once said about this chapter, he says, it is not evident that it provides any significant theological resource. It is difficult to know in what context it might be of value for theological exposition. Big words, but in other words, he's saying it's not obvious even to him what value this chapter even provides. And yet, it's there. It's there. And it asks us to figure out why. Why is this chapter there? Church, I would argue that Genesis 38 should be our biggest clue of all. That the Joseph story, at least isn't entirely about Joseph. Remember, we, we already know this about Jacob's family. This is about Jacob's family. And Jacob's family consists of 12 sons. And so Joseph is only one of those sons. So shouldn't it at least pique our interest that out of nowhere, this second son kind of moves front and center and becomes the, the, the focus of the story for just a moment? What is, is chapter 38 all about? Well, Here's the Cliff Notes version. It begins with, with a kind of a subtle parallel to Joseph's story in chapter 37. You know, Joseph leaves his brothers because he's sold into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt. The text actually says about Judah that he left his brothers, and he went elsewhere. He went down to wherever he is, and he started a family, and he had three sons of his own. He had Ur, Onan, and Shelah. 
And Ur, we're told, marries a woman named Tamar. But shortly thereafter, Ur dies because he's a wicked guy. And so Judah tells the middle son, Onan, hey, take Tamar as your wife and go have kids with her. But Onan, culturally speaking, understands something. He understands that if he does, if he has kids with Tamar specifically, those kids wouldn't end up being considered his kids. And so he avoids having kids with, with Tamar. And because of that, he is also viewed as wicked, and he ends up dead. And so Judah basically tells Tamar, hey, Tamar, Shelah is too young. He's a boy still. Why don't you go away, go live with your family, and then come back when Shelah's a man, and I'll give him uh, to you then. So she does. But all these years pass, and she realizes Judah did not keep his promises. He didn't keep his word. And she comes back to him. But this time she does something interesting, something unexplainable. She disguises herself as a prostitute. And she tricks Judah, Judah who is now a widower, into sleeping with her. I know this is all very scandalous. I, I, I concede. And so three months later, people are realizing that Tamar is pregnant. And there's no earthly reason why she should be pregnant. She's not married to anybody. And so they're getting, they're getting riled up. They're getting ready to end her. And so she reveals privately to Judah that she was the woman that he slept with three months ago because Judah did not keep his promise to her. And so Judah seems to have this sobering moment of, of repentance where he goes, hey, she is more righteous than I am since I wouldn't even give my son Shelah to her. And so just like Isaac and Rebekah, Tamar's pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. Their names are Perez and Zerah. Now, ask yourself this. Why does that matter? Well, right here and right now, it, it doesn't seem to matter all that much without the benefit of hindsight. But hindsight is exactly what we have. It's a benefit that you and I have reading this thousands of years later. And so I want you to pay attention to how the entire New Testament begins. Turn to page 1 of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, starts like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Church, why is Genesis 38 included in the middle of Joseph's story? I would argue it's because it isn't Joseph's story. Joseph isn't the son of promise. Jacob is. Judah is. And when you finally begin to see that, it helps put everything else about the end of Genesis into perspective. Because church, what is God's ultimate plan? It's, it's a rescue plan for God's people. And it's a plan that culminates and finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Nearly 40 generations later, Jesus is the fulfillment of this plan. And what I want you to see more than anything else in today's message is that amid all the beautiful storytelling of Joseph's life, and he has this incredible, incredible life, it's this, that God's actions, the things that he does, 
or his inactions, the things that he chooses not to do, they all serve God's plans. I'm going to say that again. God's actions or his inactions are there to serve God's plans. What do I mean? I mean that God's plan, God's ultimate plan is not about prospering Joseph. It's not about helping Joseph get revenge on his brothers or or any of that stuff. What is it about? It's all about God's glory revealed in Christ's story. Church, Jesus is the plan. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the plan. And what you'll begin to see as you read Genesis 37, 38, all the way through 50, with new lenses, a new perspective, is that Joseph and Judah, and even Tamar, and Potiphar's wife, and so many more, they're each being used by God in their own ways, throughout their own lives, to bring about the redemption that ultimately comes through Jesus. Guys, God's actions or inactions serve God's plans. And so what that means is we get to start asking ourselves some of those if-then questions. What if questions? Because you realize, if Joseph has a dream, but he tactfully decides he's not going to say anything to his brothers, well, then they don't conspire to kill him or sell him. And if Judah doesn't speak up and suggest selling Joseph instead of killing him, well, then Joseph dies right there in a pit. And if Tamar doesn't work so hard to get pregnant in Judah's family, Perez is never born. And if Joseph doesn't go to Potiphar's house, he doesn't gain the skills that he eventually needs to lead all of Egypt. And if Potiphar's wife doesn't lie about Joseph, Joseph probably just stays in Potiphar's house forevermore, happy as a clam. And he isn't thrown in prison to interpret dreams by the baker and the cupbearer. And if Joseph doesn't interpret their dreams, he wouldn't be given the chance to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And if Pharaoh doesn't give Joseph the chance to interpret his dreams and doesn't believe Joseph and put him in charge of Egypt, then the people of Egypt and all the surrounding regions would eventually starve in the famine. And if the people starve in the famine, guess who else starves in the famine? Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Perez, and so many more. There's all these stories. If Joseph doesn't forgive then these 70 members of Jacob's family don't move back to Egypt where they prosper and grow an incredible number and become this nation that God has promised, that God has planned to use to bless so many nations. Church, what I want you to see is that in almost every instance, if one of these events doesn't happen, both the good and the bad, I can't emphasize that enough, then God's ultimate redemption plan may be interrupted. It may not happen. So God uses the 17-year-old arrogant favorite son. And God uses this jealous, call it capitalist, of a son who sells his brother. And God uses a woman who's posing as a prostitute who just wants to get pregnant. And He uses a, a deceitful scorned lover. He even uses a king. Church, what I want you to be able to see throughout the story of Joseph is this. God uses good 
and God uses wickedness. God uses peace and God uses turmoil. God uses feast and God uses famine. God uses freedom and God uses slavery. God uses everything. Say everything, wherever you are. God uses everything to fulfill His ultimate plan. Everything. Church, God's actions or His inactions serve God's plans. And that's why years later, in Genesis chapter 50, when their father Jacob finally dies, the brothers all get scared. They ask themselves, oh no, our father's dead. What if? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? And Joseph hears their concern and their worry. And he reassures them. He says, guys, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Yes, you intended to harm me. But God intended that harm for good. He did it to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of all these lives. He says, no, don't be afraid. I will provide for you. And I will provide for your children. And in the time leading up to his death, Jacob sat with all his family. And he looked at each son one by one. And he blessed them. Blessed them. Blessed them. And every single one had basically about a verse, maybe two verses of things to say. But you realize there are two sons, not just one, there are two sons who receive significant blessings. Who are they? Judah and Joseph. And in the years that followed, as we'll read in the months to come, it was Judah's family who would go on to produce King David. It was Judah's family who would go on to produce King Solomon. And even as the nation began to fracture after that, in this one united kingdom divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south, it was Judah's family and Joseph's family who produced the kings for each kingdom respectively. And so as we draw to a close this morning, I want to point out one small but important detail. That God's promise to Abraham several generations ago, had, had two important facets. First, God told him that his descendants would live in a land that was not their own, that they would be enslaved and they would be mistreated for 400 years. Church, if you've been reading Exodus, you know what happens. What is getting ready to happen in Exodus is part of God's plan. Does that mean he's guilty of the evil? No, it means it's part of his plan. God's using it. And secondarily, God told him, whoever blesses Abraham's descendants would be blessed, and whoever curses them would be cursed. And so when you look back at the story of Joseph, that is exactly what you see. Everywhere Joseph goes, God's blessing follows. When he goes to Potiphar's house, God's blessing follows. When he goes to prison, God's blessing follows. When he is second in charge of all of Egypt, God's blessing follows. But what happens when God's people are cursed? What did he promise Abraham? Whoever curses you, I will curse. Church, that's what we're getting ready to see next week. What happens when God's people are cursed? God's actions or inactions serve God's plans. And so what do we take from all this? What's the point? What What's the action item? What do I, Josh, 
What do you get to do with all that we just learned this morning? It's this. Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Tamar and so many others remind you and I of the simple reality that there are no promises of thriving. There are no promises of prosperity. There are no promises of health or anything of the like simply because we walk with God. At least not right now. Not in the immediate moment. And sometimes we can't help ourselves as Christians to believe and to behave as though God's reward, God rewards goodness and righteousness and faithfulness and curses wickedness. The reality is not quite that simple. It's not that you're good and so you're rich and you're healthy. And if you're bad, you're, you're, you're poor and you're sick. There are times when God uses the wickedness of our world for His good. And there are times where He might even use goodness for evil, however that works. He's never the purveyor of evil, but He's big enough to use it in the midst of it, to work in the midst of it. And so in recent years, it's become commonplace for us Christians to just react all the time, to speculate all the time over so many things. Why is this particular party? Why is this particular person in the White House? What does that tell us about God's blessing or God's curse upon us? Or there's this virus raging the globe. What does that tell us about God's blessing or His curse upon us? Number one, here's what I hope we understand. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests some, some divine prophesied blessing over this country. I want to make that clear. But secondarily, and this is the most important part, Genesis reminds us that God works powerfully in the midst of both. When things are going great and when things are going awful, God is working in the midst of both. And so we can't be so simple as to suggest such a, a basic cause and effect kind of relationship between our circumstances and our righteousness. Those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand. Remember, God's actions or inactions are serving God's plans. And so what is happening in your life right now? What are you going through? Is life hard? Is it great? Chances are we've all had a tough year here in 2020 and 2021. Well, Jacob's family story reminds us that whether it's feast or it's famine in our lives, God is still working toward His plans. And my question for you this morning is do you trust His plans? Do you believe His plans? Do you trust Him? Do you believe Him? And most importantly, do you trust Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your life? If you haven't made Him Lord of your life, that's exactly what I want to invite you to this morning. It's a journey that we would love to join you on, to walk with you on. And you can start that today. All you have to do is comment in the comment section or write us an email at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. And as I close, I want to say this blessing over you. You'll hear it each and every week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face to you and give you peace. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, we'll see you next week.